I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we comb through the text of the Bible looking for ways to apply the text to our own lives. This week we're in Genesis 38. Last week we began a transition in the text from Jacob to his sons. Primarily, Joseph will be the main actor for the rest of the book. But that's not the case this week. This week the text takes a detour to follow Judah for a time, before going back to the story of Joseph for the remainder of the book. A sudden narrative shift is one that can bring confusion for those who are going through the text for the first or the fifth time. If this were our first time through the Bible, we might think that the narrative was about to track Judah after the selling of Joseph. But as we continue past this chapter, we find that this chapter is really just an aside. If we track back through the last few chapters, we find that one by one, Jacob's oldest children have been behaving in distinctly non-Israel ways. They haven't learned the lessons of their father. Simeon and Levi, they destroyed an entire city for the sake of honor. Reuben attempted a coup in a moment of weakness of his father. Judah got the bright idea of not killing Joseph, but selling him for money into slavery because of his own shame and his younger brother's honor being lifted into a place above him. And we have in a few places in the past looked at this idea of how do you respond when you find that another who may not deserve it receives an honored position, gift, or thing that you yourself want or feel that you deserve. In Cain's situation, he killed his brother when his brother received the honor that should have been his as the firstborn. And in that lesson, we looked at other examples throughout scripture that reflect this idea. What does Saul do when he recognizes that David is favored to replace him and not his own son? He attempts to kill David. What did the Sanhedrin do to Stephen when they see him operating in powers and signs and miracles, but teaching a message that's different from theirs? They kill him. What did the religious do to Yeshua when he was obviously honored by God the Father, and their jealousy coupled with their misunderstanding of his message got the better of them? They killed him. And what was the initial plot against Joseph when he was not only honored by Jacob, but also through a series of dreams honored by God? Their initial response was, kill him. Get rid of this dreamer. And who was it that saved Joseph from this fate? Well, Reuben wanted to, but Reuben wanted to return Joseph home safely. But because of other distractions, for some reason, Reuben's not there when Joseph is sold, and so Reuben is unable to do this. So who saved Joseph? It was Judah. You see, Judah did not like Joseph any more than his brothers did. He did not want Joseph around, but Judah was also not willing to go so far as some of his other brothers. Was Judah innocent? By no means. But rather than seeking a solution in death to solve the problem of his offended honor, 
Judah creates a solution that looked like a win-win for all parties involved. No blood would be shed, money would be gained, honor would be served, the path of life found in a bad situation. Not innocent, and yet not ultimately guilty of blood. And so now the story continues, and it follows Judah rather than Joseph. And as we'll discover, Judah is the one to become the leader of Israel, the line from which kings come, the line from which our own Messiah comes. But Judah, he's still a young man, and he has his own problems. He has some growing to do, and it is this story right here, and it's that last one that provided the foundation for the change that we will see occur in Judah later in the book. So let's read this chapter and examine the change that this chapter reveals is occurring in Judah as life has its way. Genesis 38 And at that time it came to be that Yehuda left his brothers and turned aside to a man, an Adulamite, whose name was Chira. And Yehuda saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shuvah. And he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son and called his name Ur. And she conceived again and bore a son and called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again, and bore a son, and called his name Shelah. And he was at Kaziv when she bore him. And Yehuda took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Yehuda's firstborn, was evil in the eyes of Hashem, and Hashem took his life. And Yehuda said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife, and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. And Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, and it came to be when he went into his brother's wife that he spilled on the ground, lest he should give an offspring to his brother. But what he did displeased Hashem, so he took his life too. Then Yehuda said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah is grown. For he said, Lest he also die as his brothers did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. And after a long time the daughter of Shuvah, Yehuda's wife died, and Yehuda was comforted, and he went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Chira the Adulamite. And it was reported to Tamar, saying, See, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. And she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. And Yehuda saw her and reckoned her for a whore, for she had covered her face. And he turned aside to her by the way and said, Please, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What do you give me to come in to me? And he said, Let me send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, Do you give me a pledge until you send it? So he said, What pledge should I give you? And she said, Your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. And he gave them to her and went in to her, and she conceived by him. And she arose and went away, and removed her veil, and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Yehuda sent the young goat by the hand of his friend the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. And he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the cult prostitute who was beside the way to Enaim? And they said, There was no cult prostitute in this place. And he returned to Yehuda and said, I have not found her. And the men of the place also said, There was no cult prostitute in this place. And Yehuda said, Let her take them for herself, lest we become despised, for I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. And it came to be, about three new moons after, that Yehuda was informed, saying, Tamar your daughter-in-law has whored, and see, she has conceived by whoring. And Yehuda said, Bring her out, and let her be burned. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please examine whose these are, the seal and cord and the staff. And Yehuda examined and said, 
she has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Shelah my son, and he never knew her again. And it came to be at the time for giving birth that, see, twins were in her womb. And it came to be when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, This one came out first. And it came to be as he drew back his hand that, see, his brother came out. And she said, How did you break through? This breach be upon you. So his name was called Peretz. And afterward his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand. So his name was called Zerach. And once again, we're faced with a chapter of scripture that leaves us scratching our head in many places and causing us to wonder exactly what happened here. Why would the Bible, the source of God's wisdom, include such a confusing story? And when I come across these stories, I've learned to just stop and ask one simple question. What am I missing? What's the context? What are the motivations? What are the societal issues in play? What is the larger context of the narrative? And so forth. And the answer to these questions, they can open our eyes to the story under the story that can reveal some depth to these stories that may have been missing before. One other thing that I find helps me to discover more is to look at these characters as real people with real lives, real concerns, real emotions, real relationships, and real motivations. The fact is, is that if we met these people today, they would be modern people with very little difference from us. The biggest difference between us and them would be the culture that they were born into. Now, every culture has base assumptions that they make, and these assumptions, they affect our lives in a very real way. Now, all that occurs in these early stories of the Torah occur before the Torah is actually given to mankind. These people, they're operating with a bare minimum of explanation of just what it is that God expects from them. In fact, the idea that God expected anything from humans was a foreign idea in many cultures. Most pagan religions of the day, they viewed the gods as fickle, unpredictable, and for the most part, unconcerned with the day-to-day -day lives of the common man. The best that a person could do was to not offend, and perhaps please the god in question, but the ways of doing so were never really clearly defined. Well, when we recognize this, we need to be more forgiving in our opinion of some of the crazy and seemingly immoral actions that these early patriarchs take. It's real easy to look back on them and to cast judgment, as we've seen over and over, but as far as most of them were concerned, there is no standard but honor. In my studies on this chapter, I've run into a lot of people that have judged Judah for various reasons and various failings, but I believe that to be a bit precipitous and, for the most part, unwarranted. Now, it's not to say that he's without fault here. He, he definitely has fault here. But we need to understand the context before we begin assigning blame. So let's always dig beneath the surface to see what clues Scripture drops for us to discern further what might be going on in the text. So the very first verse in this chapter gives us one clue. Judah left his brothers and turns aside to an Adulamite, an Adulamite named Chaira. Now, Adulam is a place, and its meaning, it might give us a clue, because the place means justice of the people. In the same way, Hira may also offer a clue in the meaning of the name of a noble family. Judah had grown up with older brothers who were willing to slaughter at the drop of a hat for perceived dishonor. He'd grown up with an eldest brother who wasn't satisfied with his place and sought to add shame to his father and ascend above him. 
He had grown up with brothers, sons of his father's concubines, who lived perpetually in shame of not being sons of his father's wife. And if Joseph was favored above all others, the sons of Leah were next, and the sons of the concubines were low on the scale of family honor, and the honor of the family was rather low itself. Because of all this shame flowing around the family of Jacob from all of his brothers and the injustice that they perpetuated in seeking to restore their own personal and family honor, is it any wonder that Judah turns aside from them to a man named Noble Family, who's from a place called Justice of the People? Let's shift the topic a bit to myself. As an example, I grew up in a highly dysfunctional family. I'm seven years younger than my older sister, nine years older than my younger sister. And in the intervening years, I was the only natural child of my parents. When I was three, however, my parents brought my brother into our house. He was 20 months older than me. Well, he still is. And he ended up being a bully to me for the rest of my years at home. My brother abused every member of my family in one way or another, but I received the brunt of his abuse as a young boy. And through the years growing up, I began to pass abuse on to my younger sister. And by the time I left home, we all, all of us had a bully victim complex that shaped each one of us. When the time and opportunity came to leave, I jumped at it. I joined the army first and I fit right in because I was used to being bullied and I had learned how to appease bullies and that's how I saw my superiors. But I returned home and had to face the family once again. And so when the opportunity to leave home for college came, once again, I jumped at it. I left for South Carolina and I never moved back. Yeah, sure, I visit every year or so, but I had to break free from my family. And from South Carolina, I watched as the cycle of abuse continued through my younger sister, abuse that I was primarily guilty of perpetrating on her. Now, I don't say all of this to disparage my family. I love my family. I simply couldn't continue to live in the shadow of this pain that I had both caused and received at their hands. Over the years and with distance, healing has been accomplished in my family. And with separation of time and growth in each of us individually, we have become new people. We're no longer the, the jerks that we were when we were younger. Now, this example with my family, it's a very simple example in my life that I can look to, and it helps me to identify with Judah's life. Abused, the victim of others who took advantage. I mean, his older brothers were Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. He also was an abuser. He passed that abuse downward to those who were vulnerable and weak below him, outwardly enforcing others to give him honor, inwardly wallowing in his own victim-perpetrator shame. Sometimes, when you're stuck in a situation like that, it's easier to just leave it all behind, to move away and start over. As I consider Judah, I believe this is what Judah was attempting. He wanted a new start, not bound by the shame and the guilt of the past. And so he goes to a place of justice, and he befriends a man of family honor. That new start is there, and from this new place, he doesn't have to allow his past to control him. He can rebuild himself in his life. He can find himself apart from his family. And in this new place, he finds a wife. He has kids. He has three sons, and they grow. He finds a wife for his oldest. Everything seems to be going great. And then Ur dies, and Ur has no heir. So now Tamar passes on to the next oldest son, Onan. 
This is the first time in scripture that we read of a practice that's known today as Leverite marriage. This term has nothing to do with Levites, but rather it's a Latin term, and it literally means marrying a brother-in-law, from the word lavir, or husband's brother. So the idea was that if a man had no heir, it was his brother's duty to create an heir for his brother, to carry on in his place, to support his brother's wife so that she wasn't destitute. Why was this such a problem for Onan? Did he hate his brother? No, I don't think so. He simply loved himself more. Because if his brother has a son, then the double portion inheritance that went to the firstborn would go to the son and not to Onan, and that son wouldn't have Onan's name. Onan would, in essence, be operating contrary to his own self-interest. Brotherly love and the sacrifice for the good of a brother is not always the desirable thing. If Ur never had an heir, then Onan would inherit, and so he went through the motions, but he acted to prevent a child from being raised in his brother's name. He was more concerned about helping himself than he was for watching over his brother's well-being and the well-being of his sister-in-law. This isn't just a neighbor. This isn't just a stranger. This isn't even a cousin. This is his own brother. First John 4.20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one not loving his brother whom he has seen, how is he able to love God whom he has not seen? Now, either Ur nor Onan were proper image bearers. In fact, the way that Onan treated Ur when it was his responsibility to watch out for his brother was a repeat of the way that the sons of Israel had acted. And Judah had this one thing going for him, though. When it came down to cutting off his brother from the land of the living, as Onan was attempting to do, Judah found a way to keep him alive. And so Judah, in the end, is left with only one son, Shelah. Did he blame Tamar in some way for the death of his sons? Perhaps he did. It was not uncommon for a woman who's had two dead husbands at a young age to be looked at as cursed in those days. I mean, if you turn to the Apocrypha, those books that were removed from Scripture over time, not really even Scripture, but there's a book in there called Tobit. And it itself is not scripture. It's very interesting because it does help us to kind of get a picture of ancient Near East thought. And in the story, Tobit's son was to marry a woman who'd been married seven times before. And each time before, after the woman was married to this man, before they would consummate the marriage, the man would fall over and die. And the woman was seen as the source of the curse in this story. It was a popular parable, if you will, that was told in the ancient Near East of the cursed woman and the dead husbands. It would appear as if Judah was afraid of a similar curse and afraid that if he gave Shelah to her, that he too would die. And so when the time came, he held Shelah back. Judah didn't live up to the requirement of providing an heir for his own firstborn son. He was willing to cut Ur off rather than to chance losing Shelah as well. And so Tamar, she is left in her father's house long after she should have been married to Shelah. And time passes and Judah's own wife dies. And then it says that in verse 12 that Judah was comforted. And the word that's translated here as comforted also carries the idea of being grieved or being sorry or suffering, consoling or moving to pity. It's, it's a wide range of options to be chosen from there. In my own mind, 
I tend to change that word to grief. He was grieved over the loss of his sons. And so in his grief, he buries himself in diversions, as men tend to do after the loss of a close loved one. So he buries himself in his friends, his work, in the arms of a woman. But Tamar, you see, Tamar wasn't, she wasn't a fool. She knew that she was never going to be given Shaddai. Her prospects of overcoming her own personal shame were zero if she didn't do something. But she couldn't go to just any man because she was promised to Shalah through the covenant. She would be committing adultery to go to any other man. She would be transgressing the covenant that Judah had made with her father. So the only thing that she could do would be to somehow get Judah to finally give her to Shelah. Or, or she could fool Judah in some way into being the father of her child. But if she did this, she would have to make her defense airtight. Because if she fooled Judah into this and she got pregnant, she had to have proof it was him. Because otherwise, she'd broken the terms of the covenant. And that was a death sentence. And yet, despite the danger to herself, she goes for it. She dresses up as a temple prostitute. Remember, in the ancient Near East, prostitution was primarily an act of worship to pagan gods. Prostitutes were seen as priestesses of the various gods, and the temples acted as uh, pimps of sorts. They would get the largest cut of the income and would protect and provide for the women and keep them away from abusive johns. So my question is, why would Tamar take this risk? Why would she even dress up as a prostitute without the protection of the temple in an attempt to target a single man unless she knew that man was known for visiting prostitutes. You see, the risk is too great if she were seen in this outfit, if she was found missing from her father's home, alone and soliciting sex from strangers. All it would take was an accusation, or even worse, to have her veil fall in front of someone who knew her, and she would be sentenced to death. Well, despite the danger, despite everything else, Tamar's plan works. Judah sees her, he propositions her, and she asks what her payment will be. He says a goat, a reasonable price, apparently. But he doesn't have the goat on him at the moment, so she asks for a pledge that he will pay. And he asks, well, what would you accept in pledge? And she says, your seal, your cord, and your staff. Now, these aren't just random items. They, they mean something. The seal, the seal is a man's personal identity in the ancient Near East. Your cord your cord is your family identity and your staff. Your staff is your office, your authority, your power. What would these things be to a prostitute? She couldn't exchange them to anyone else for anything else. The only one that they had value to was Judah because they're his personal identity. And so he agrees. Well, they do what prostitutes and Johns do and Tamar conceives. They part ways, and she returns to her father's home and takes up her garments of widowhood once again. He goes back to the flock, and he sends a friend to go pay the woman. Now, we're all familiar with this part. The significant thing here is what Judah was willing to pledge in exchange for sex. He gave everything that identified him in the world over into the hands of an unknown woman. His seal was the thing that ensured his identity. It bore his name, and as we've discussed before in the ancient Near East, the idea of name and includes honor, character, reputation, and more. 
Without his seal, he could not enter into any kind of deal of significance. His cord, his cord identified the family that he was connected to. Their honor was his honor. Their shame was his shame. They were his protection and they were his collateral. His staff, his staff would have signified his importance within his tribe. It may be that he already had the staff of inheritance as the firstborn of Jacob. We're not really sure. Uh, Since the other brothers had already failed in the ways that caused Jacob to pass over them, he is the next in line now that Joseph's gone. He may have received a staff that signified he was the inheritor of a family once his father passed on. These things, they're no small items. They're highly important and essentially so. But to Judah not to anyone else. I can't help it as I considered this, but to think of the congruence between this story and the story of Esau selling his birthright for a bowl of stews. And here we have Judah giving away his identity for a roll in the hay. And so he gives them up. He allows them out of his sight and they disappear. And for the next few months, he's without these things three months to think over what it is that he's done, three months to ponder and to wonder. He was put into a position of weakness, and it seems as if he tries to play it off with his friends. But this is no insignificant thing. If anyone found out that these things were missing, he could lose way much more than his sons. He would lose all honor, everything, because these items, they were his defense against the unscrupulous. They were his proof of his power and his honor, his word and his bond. And they're all missing, and they're all in the hands of a prostitute for whatever reason. He had to know somewhere deep inside that this would come back to bite him one day. But what could he do? He didn't know who had it, and so he simply ignored it. For us, it would be the same as if someone took our driver's license, our ATM card, and the keys to our safety deposit box. The one who bore them, they could do anything in our name, and it wouldn't be questioned. So in essence, Tamara was not only playing the harlot, she was an identity thief. And in the ancient Near East, there's no way to get these back, no recourse. You can't simply go to the bank and get a new seal or a new staff made. Well, three months go by three months without his items of office. How many times did he have to play off their absence or misdirect any who may wish to examine them for whatever reason? Three months without them, and then, shame upon shame, Tamar, his son's wife, is pregnant. How dare she? She was contracted to his son, and she was out cheating on him. She deserves to die. The covenant has been broken. And so she is brought before him on her way to her execution. She doesn't offer any excuses when Judah confronts her. She only offers his items back for his inspection. She gives back his identity. And the reality of what was occurring here, it must have struck him full force. His own short-sightedness, his own unrighteous action toward her that forced her into this, And when he gets these, he calls her righteous when he discovers what she has done. And we're faced with that confusion. She was righteous? She dressed up with a prostitute in order to sleep with her father-in-law. How is that the righteous thing? 
And we scratch our head, we shrug our shoulders, and we move on. And we do the same thing when Lot is called righteous in the book of Peter, or when Jephthah is called righteous. What? The dude who offered up his kids to a rape mob? Righteous? The dude who sacrificed his daughter? Righteous? And that brings us back to a definition of righteous. Because being righteous doesn't mean being moral or good. Being righteous means doing the things of the covenant. And this is something that we saw many lessons ago way back in Genesis 14. And in this way, Tamar was righteous in her actions. She worked to fulfill the terms of the covenant in the only way open to her. A covenant of marriage in the ancient Near East, it was not made between two individuals. It was a joining together of two families. All members of both families were part of the covenant, and they all stood to gain something from the union. For the woman, having children was a big deal. Without children, she had no one to care for her, and no protection once her husband died. It was the duty of the closest family members to provide this for her, thus her husband's brother. This was keeping the covenant. Everyone in both families did their part to uphold the terms of this contract. And so when Judah withheld Shelah, and in doing so broke the covenant himself, the only option left to Tamar to keep the covenant that had been made was to go to Judah himself. But propriety wouldn't allow Judah to sleep with her, even though Judah's own failure to keep the covenant himself demanded it. He was the only one left if Shelah was not available to fulfill these terms. And in the end, Judah ended up replacing his two sons who had died through Tamar. Her firstborn became his firstborn, because his previous firstborn had died before having children. Judah acts in the manner of the Leverite, the brother-in-law, raising up a son in his son's name. And once again, in the birth of Tamar's sons, we see that one was in line to be first, and the younger then supplants the older, and is the first out of the birth canal. And his name becomes breached. It's actually really cool, because he breached the protocol of birth, right? His brother should have been born first. And this time, that, that stolen firstborn blessing, it's stolen while still in the womb. There's no messing about with deceptions and bowls of stew or anything else. It just it happens before they're born, and so it makes things a whole lot easier. And thus ends this side chapter into the life of Judah. And we're left with the question of, why Judah? Now, there is the why in the sense of, why are we told about Judah at all at this point? Well, we'll come to find out that Judah is a very important character in the last part of this book. And Judah will play a big role in the reconciliation of the family back to Joseph. So in this sense, Judah is the logical choice to get this story, and that helps us to connect the man who he was to the man he's going to be. We get this deeper picture into this father of the line of Israeli kings. But that's not the why that I had in mind. There's also the question of, why Judah? In the sense of, why is it that Judah that was chosen to be the firstborn? The others failed in some big way. They lost their right to inheritance. Why was Judah chosen when we've seen that he too failed to act in a righteous matter? Why not move on to another son? Well, while Judah had acted unrighteously, it was Judah that saved Joseph from death. Reuben's way would have ended in death. The brother's way would have ended in death. 
Judah is the one that finds the life in the situation, and it's Judah who reconciles the family back together in the end. And it's Judah who, like his son David, recognizes his own failures when he's confronted with them and then changes who he is. And it's this that God looks for in those who serve him, not perfection, but repentance. When we do wrong, we need to seek forgiveness and recognize our own unrighteous behavior and then change. But it's not this why that I wanted to contemplate. The why that I want to dig into is a question that's directed at Judah. Why, Judah? Why are you doing these things? What is your motivation? When Judah saved Joseph from death, was it a couple of pieces of silver that he was looking for? Did he simply want a new pair of shoes to gain from the loss of Joseph? Or was he too, like Reuben, looking for a way out of the situation that had arisen from a moment of temper? He knew that simply rescuing Joseph from the pit would not keep Joseph safe. Joseph had to leave for his own good. Perhaps it is that Judah never conceptualized it as such, but he simply knew that killing Joseph would have been wrong. But then when we get to the story of Tamar, Judah was doing okay until he holds back Shelah. Why? Uh, the text states clearly why Judah did this thing, in order to keep Shelah alive. He didn't want him marrying a cursed woman who had killed his two other sons. He was seeking to preserve life, rather than preserving covenants. And here comes the key. He looked for life, and he found it in the wrong place. And his short-sightedness prevented him from seeing that it was the covenant that was the place for the preservation and the creation of life. That is hugely profound if you sit and think on it. The covenant is the way of life, not an individual's life or death here on earth. And in the end, Judah is faced with a choice. His reputation, his honor, or his children. Now, does he, for the sake of honor, get rid of this woman who's been nothing but a thorn in his side for so long? I mean, he could do it. All he has to do is say nothing, accuse her of adultery, and she'll die. And everything that might come back to disparage his name, it'll disappear. He'll have his identity back. Everything goes back to normal. He can find a new wife for Shelah. His son will be safe. His honor will be safe. All it costs is the life of, a, if not an innocent woman, at least a righteous woman. Or can he sacrifice his own honor, his own status in the eyes of his neighbor? I mean, he did keep Shelah back from Tamar after agreeing to give him to her. He broke the covenant first, and it was his own unrighteous act that drove her to playing the whore. And the one that whored with her was the only person left for her to complete the terms of the covenant. It was his fault that she had to take this drastic action in the first place. And if he allows her to live and reveals the true situation of what occurred, he's going to lose honor. His shame will be revealed to everyone. He'll have to confess that it was his own action that had broken the covenant first. He'll have to repent, and he'll be guilty of transgression, not her. And in the end, he chooses to do the right thing. He takes the shame upon himself. He repents of his transgression, 
and he spares her life, and he pardons his daughter-in-law because of this. The sin was his, and when he repents, he gets two new sons. This is why Judah, I think. Judah wants to do the right thing in a world that's gone oh so wrong. He's surrounded by evil and brokenness. He accepts his own shame when it is there. He attempts to act in righteousness and to preserve life, but he can't always see the end goal and he doesn't always define it properly. And we all too often, we take these early actions of Judah and we ascribe guilt and blame and ugh. But it's Judah's path that reveals a path of repentance, a path of life and a path of keeping covenant in the end. Because true honor, true honor is found in recognizing your own personal shame and allowing others to have the honor that's due to them. Judah's not perfect, but then neither are any of us. But his example is one that we can strive to emulate in some way, in the same way that we can strive to emulate David, not for his sin, but for his repentance. And we can pursue righteousness, pursue the keeping of covenant, pursue the preservation of life. These should be our focus, and we won't always get it right, but we can certainly attempt to act in these ways. And when, as is bound to happen, our hypocrisy is revealed, we have to be willing to acknowledge our own faults, accept the shame, repent, and then work to make it right. And with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, we can at least make an honest effort to live a life of life. We can truly and honestly seek life in all that we do. And so as always, remember to Dersh Chai, to seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Dersh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Darish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.